I'm Will Hansen, and welcome to the Experts in the Room podcast, brought to you by Extreme Push. In this series, we chat to some of the leading minds working in the customer experience, retention, and data space in some of the most competitive and fastest growing industries in the world. In this episode, Emerging Markets, I spoke to the CEO of Fortuna Entertainment Group, Victor Corcoran. Victor is one of the European sports betting and gaming industry's senior executives with a broad background across multiple industries in fast-paced and emerging markets. We dive into a range of topics, including the ongoing opportunities and challenges facing the gaming industry now and into the future. Welcome to the Experts in the Room. I'm joined by Victor Corcoran from Fortuna Entertainment Group. Victor, welcome to the podcast. Well, good to be with you today. Thank you for the invite. Um, looking forward to our chat. It's awesome to have you on board with us today, Victor. As the title says in the podcast, what we try to do today is really dig into some of the expertise that you have in your career so far. Spanning multiple industries, I think, is one of the most intriguing things to talk to you about. Really get an understanding of what it's like to to act at that CEO level and that executive level in some of the kind of fastest growing companies, both in sports betting and gaming, but across across different industries as well. Um, so it'd be really cool to get a maybe a, a 30 second kind of pitch into into how your career has kind of uh, progressed at the moment. Happy, happy to do that, Will. But before we start, um, so the title of the podcast is um, Talking to Experts. So um, somebody dropped out at the last minute and you gave me a call or... Yeah, exactly. So we obviously have a long list of people to get there. So we, we just kind of tick flick through that um, black book uh, of our CEO, Tommy, and, and your name popped up. So that must be why you've gotten the call up, a late call up even, but usually they tend to work out the best. A lot of people must have declined in advance, but uh, good to be here. So my, my career, um, I, I never do this very briefly, but I'm, I'm an engineer by training. I started off in, in construction, pouring concrete. I spent the first big engineering project was the Heathrow Express Tunnel. So anybody traveling between Heathrow Airport and uh, City Centre London, take the tube would be my advice. I was uh, one of the senior engineers on that project back early in my career. I returned to Ireland after a couple of years working abroad. I actually worked in France for two years, then London, that project. Uh, returned to Ireland to find an Irish wife and um, met an Italian lady. <laughs> she didn't enjoy uh, Irish weather. So I ended up um, traveling and I spent most of my career, the only common team to my career has been um, trying to find a country we both like, which is surprisingly difficult. So I, I got into telecommunications as an engineer because mobile telecommunications was fast growing. It was a global business and I was able to go from project to project. And I've had the opportunity to work in some wonderful uh, countries and cultures, spent four years in the Middle East, uh, spent time in uh, Pakistan, uh, worked in Eastern Europe in, in uh, Slovenia not long after the Yugoslav Civil War and um, spent a couple of years in Italy because uh, my wife's Italian so I tried that country out so I've had a quite an eclectic uh, career in in technical roles in, in mobile phone networks both deploying them and then uh, maintaining them sort of like a CTO kind of role. I decided 15-20 years ago that I wanted to get into general management. I enjoyed being uh, in technical management but I thought uh, the fun side was the guys making the money um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to get into a more commercial role and there was a Irish-owned company called Digicel uh, and they were expanding into the Pacific and I, I knew telecoms and uh, I knew Irish culture so I applied for a job with them 
I, I took a step back in, in seniority, uh, but I went in there on a promise that if I deliver for them, they'd, they'd give me a chance to test my commercial skills. So I went from being a CTO to being a country manager in Digicel. So I, I had a lot of fun working in some really interesting countries, meeting some really cool people. But in Digicel, I, I ran a variety of um, consumer uh, telecoms businesses, um, starting off in one country, the Cayman Islands, ending up running a, a hub of countries in the Eastern Caribbean. I'd love to pull on that a bit, Victor, like a huge shift in, in what you were doing. And obviously a lot of planning, or maybe there wasn't much planning that went into it. You're talking to another expat that's kind of been traveling around a bit. So I get the whole idea of uh, ending up where you end up kind of by chance. But how much have you kind of put into mapping that career path out and, and going down that route to end up, you know, in technology um, like you have? Because I think that's relatively unique from what I can tell with most of the senior management and most of the technology companies that are kicking around at the moment, um, that type of background. Early on in my career, not an awful lot. When I left uh, university in Dublin, that was the early 90s, 50% of my class went uh, went abroad. When my elder brother was two years ahead of me left, about 70%. So Ireland in the 80s was, wasn't a particularly uh, booming economy. And for um, job opportunities in the early 90s, like um, it was a very different country than today. So I actually got a, on a bus to London because uh, pretty cheap Ryanair flights. Within a week of graduating from college, arrived in London, went through a phone book, uh, got my first job as a security guard. So it wasn't the most uh, strategic <laughs> early career, but um, my first job actually, I was, so I was in London, I was working um, quickly moved from being a security guard to working on a construction site because I studied engineering, so I knew how to handle a shovel, a shovel allegedly. Um, and there was a ad, an ad in the construction, uh, the construction times in the UK for bilingual engineers, a French company looking for a French and English speaking engineer. And I applied for it because um, being in Ireland, we do languages up until leaving cert and I spent summers in France. And it turns out they offered me a job and I went to France for two years and they did a grad program. And that's when I really started my career through graduate training. But I was the only applicant because in the UK, people specialise earlier in their career. So there was no such thing as a bilingual graduate engineer in the UK. So my first job was because I was the only candidate. You've taken that to the next level now. I'd love to get into what you're doing with Fortuna Entertainment Group at the moment and obviously a move to Prague in the Czech Republic, a huge opportunity, massive growth company in the space in in sports betting and gaming. And I know you're only, what, three, four months in that role at the moment? Uh, 10 or 11 weeks thereabouts, yes. Yeah, okay. So I'm sure it's all all new to you, but massive experience with your previous role in Paddy Power Online too. So I'd love to hear about how you shifted from Digicel into, into that type of environment as well. I'll happily talk to you about that. But before we go on, I just think yeah. one story. Um, so like my first four years in my career were working for a French company in France and then and then in London on the Heathrow Express Rail Link. But probably one of the most formative memories, I was a graduate engineer on site in Paris and I was not even 12 months out of university and I was there about three weeks and uh, we started work at eight o'clock in the morning because it's a construction business and uh, senior engineer, senior project manager on the site called me into his office and goes, um, Victor, what time do you um, you start work at in the morning? What time are you here? And I said, I'm here every morning at 7.55. Uh, I've never been late. And he goes, you're a graduate engineer. You've got all the f- experienced foremen, all the construction guys, they come in at seven, they have breakfast, they chat in the canteen. If you're anyway seriously ambitious and want to learn, you should be here at seven, learning from the, learning from the experienced guys. And he was right. And it was a work culture that stuck with me. And it's like, fundamentally, when I approach any challenge in work, I try and be there, listen to people, learn, be open to new ideas and just uh, put in a bit of work. So when I got an opportunity 12 weeks ago to run a business based in Central Europe, the first thing I did was get on a plane and move to Prague. Because if I want to run a business in this part of the world, I believe it's 
helps to be able to understand your customers and understand your colleagues. So spend as much time with them as possible. I think that's really interesting. And as, as a GM and in that type of management role, how much has COVID and, and changing work environments affected that? And, and do you find that there's a difference in say, let's call it traditional employment, like engineering, where you're working on a building site compared to the type of digital nomads that are particularly working in, in the sports betting and gaming space, the challenges around keeping your teams upskilled, keeping them relevant, keeping them experts, like we're talking about in this podcast today. So do you find that that's an ongoing challenge or, or something that you're kind of having to adapt to? It's something I'm grappling with at this moment in time. It's something I presume every business leader is. So the business I took over went very much, very heavy into embracing uh, flexible working, embracing remote working, embracing home office. And one of the questions I'm asking myself is, did we go too far? During COVID, I had the pleasure of running the Paddy Power business. Paddy Power hopefully is a brand many of your listeners will be familiar with. It's an iconic brand, biggest brand in betting and gaming in Ireland and a very, very big uh, successful business in the UK as well. And COVID hit. I was actually at Cheltenham Racecourse the day that Ireland decided to shut down <laughs> working. We were, we were sponsoring the race that day. So I flew back to a very different Dublin than I'd left. But like, like most businesses, overnight we moved online and the team were incredibly strong, reacted immediately, all our trading functions, all our customer operation functions that we historically thought people had to be together in a room overnight moved, moved online and there was no customer impact. But I believe over time as a business we suffered because I believe Paddy Power was a brand-led business and it was a brand-led business built on really smart, creative people. And those smart, creative people in particular fed off the energy of one another. And the fact that suddenly these people were no longer in a room together, bouncing crazy ideas off them, actually affected how Paddy Power's brand evolved and some of the madness and some of the mischief we, sh we could come up with. So there's definitely a price to be paid from fully remote working. There's also massive benefits. So it's trying to get that perfect balance right. I think it depends on the team. It depends on the skill set. But definitely for creative people and for teams that collaborate, I think it's very important that people meet as much as possible. For other roles, such as uh, maybe technical in, in technology business, it's maybe less important. For our trading teams, in, both in Paddy Power and now in my new job, like they essentially watch sport and price. Do they need to be in the same room? Probably not. Yeah. But me personally, I love being in a busy office. I love the energy of meeting people. I love the random ideas you get at the water cooler. I must say that recording our podcast here today, I had to tell the office to keep it down while we were on, um, which is a bit rich coming from me because I'm like a gorilla stomping around in here. So yeah, I, I think some of our technical teams like being at home to stay away from the sales and marketing function that are probably a little bit louder in doing things like this day to day. So yeah, interesting. Well, we've definitely seen it, or at least in Paddy Power, we saw it yeah. in creativity. We saw it in originality and i also think you see it in uh, staff retention as in if you don't yes. feel part of a team you belong less and then being part of a team is an important motivator for all of us do you so shifting that away from internals so internal teams you said there was no impact on your customers at paddy power obviously there's been a lot written and a lot said about COVID, the opportunities that came for it for certain industries, we're seeing maybe a bit of a blowback within, definitely within the tech sector, with some of the big companies struggling because they've over-indexed on what they thought was going to happen with trends that were kind of blown up by COVID. Do you think that the sports betting and gaming industry in general has come through that period either better placed or have more opportunity to kind of take from it? Um, I think it depends on the company. My present employer which I'm still learning about, would be much more historic retail-based business. They yeah. have been operating this region. The company's been 
uh, assembled through mergers and acquisitions, but like most of the brands have been here, uh, historic brands, strong legacy uh, footprint. And reg- legacy businesses suffered massively during COVID period. Yeah. So the Fortuna business suffered massively from having their shops closed and the business trying to keep staff you know, while, while, while there's no revenue coming in. And when you've a material part of your revenue coming from retail, it's not easy. And um, that definitely hampered the business. Paddy Power, although strong retail in Ireland, in the UK, were fundamentally yeah. an online business with a small retail footprint. And because we were online only, COVID was a boon for us because um, customers who would have been with competitors in retail suddenly were looking for a home online. And uh, we were a great brand with a great product, with a great team. And so we did well from a COVID point of view because it accelerated retail to online adoption. It didn't fundamentally grow the market, but it did accelerate online to retail, probably five or seven years of migration in, in a really brief period of time. So I think it depends on the business position. Do you see a value in having that mix of retail versus online? Like there's so many online competitors, particularly in the European market at the moment, that are purely online. Do you think that there's value, particularly around brand residents, to have the retail spaces as well? Or do you think it's leaning more heavily towards going online? I think they're very different businesses, yeah. although the product may be similar. And why do I say that? Like when, when a customer chooses to bet in a retail retail environment, they tend to choose it for location and yeah. quality of staff. So like they'll know the person behind the counter or they'll know the other friend they'll meet in there. So there's a social element to retail that doesn't exist online. There's a physical location element to retail that doesn't exist online. And there is a cash element to retail that doesn't people actually like the tangible feel of cash. Um, so I do think yeah. they're very different businesses. Uh, while um, retail is accessible, it's always on. It's range a broad range of product. It's uh, simplicity. It's fast. Um, I do think, and this is a question we're asking myself, and we're looking at it with my leadership team at present: is is it worth investing in retail to online journeys and simplifying that journey and an omni-channel product post-COVID, or have the customers who are going to go online already gone online? And that's the question we're asking ourselves. That's a question I don't have the answer today. My gut tells me that um, all the low-hanging fruit are gone. So investing and trying to build a retail, what we would call an omni-channel wallet or a seamless experience, trying to build technology that helps retail customers go online, that ship has sailed and you run retail for the benefits that it gives to customers, which is location, service, and social interaction with other customers. And you accept the fact that retail will never grow in our sector at least, and you obsess about building capabilities online that helps you compete online, which is fundamentally a simple product that's easy to use and fast. Great segue there into, um, and before I go, obviously being an Australian, that resonates with me talking about the retail element and the social part of it. I think one of the big challenges for me (laughs) moving to Ireland and and the UK was not being able to put on a bet while I was having a beer in the pub, which is so relevant to the Australian market, particularly with, with Tab being part of the pubs probably for the best I think in some ways particularly when you're chasing your tail maybe after a few schooners watching the Melbourne Cup but we've all been there I think that's a really good transition point to move on to the way that you guys as a business or or the way that you're seeing best practice from a technology and online standpoint I think a really good point you made there around simplicity ease of use online a range of products and being really kind of customer led how are you envisaging that playing out in in the future for the Fortuna Entertainment Group, but but maybe from some of your experiences as well within that space? Like, what are you seeing as best in class at the moment? So I think it's a challenge for all companies in our industry, and Fortuna would be no exception. I think if you look at how this industry evolved, like betting and gambling was a retail 
product where you'd go into retail and you'd have print out of pages, basically coupons yeah. with lots of lots of range of bets so like in the uk people would have played the pool so they would have been like sort of pick which team would win and they go down the page and they'd sum it up and because when online exploded it was existing customers who understood the product who migrated online and online products were built complex based on retail coupons and they were not built for new to sector. So across the industry with limited exceptions, there is really complex products. And Fortuna would be a fine example of that where we have products built for people who really understand betting rather than products built for very recreational, come in and dip yeah. in, dip out, Melbourne Cup and we'll see you again in 12 months time kind of punter. Now, I personally think that has to change because I think uh, the, the, my thesis is that retail to online migration has happened. Uh, yeah. And now it's really, if you're going to grow, you grow through um, either attracting a different kind of customer or a more simpler product. Uh, easier said than done, though. I'm watching with interest the US because the US is exploding because the PASPA was repealed a few years ago. So gambling suddenly became legal in lots of states and online gambling became legal in lots of states where before it was non-existent. Now, interestingly, the two brands that are winning are both legacy. Well, they both had fantasy sports brands, the strong brands pre-legislation, DraftKings and FanDuel. But they also both have European, uh, well, DraftKings doesn't, but FanDuel in particular is, is number one, has expertise coming from European sports betting. So they've brought a European approach to sports betting, this complex product. And uh, while there are some startups in the US who are trying to build a more simpler recreational product and watching how they perform will be interesting, but not easy because it's a small screen. But I do think really thinking about how we obsess about every step of the customer journey and a few of the early changes I've made and I'm 10 weeks, 10 weeks in the, in the business. My predecessor had, had brought in a new chief product officer during the summer. So he'd already started on this journey, but I like, we've a new head of sports book products starting in two or three days time. So I'm really trying to focus on bringing in a culture of, uh, of obsessing about how the customer interacts with our product, not trying to build a product for like, really experienced customers who want complex things, but build really simple journeys for a, a punter like me who'll, uh, who'll place a few bets on the World Cup, who'll uh, place a bit of bet, bets on uh, my local team. And if there's a big race on, we'll have a bit of, have a like really recreational, simple, easy to use. Because fundamentally our customers are using apps like Revolut. So we need to have that kind of simplicity as well. Yeah. I love the word obsession there, Victor. I, I think it's massively important. It's something that we see in market particularly with brands that are succeeding um, from here, the, from the extreme push perspective. And obviously we're, we're fortunate enough to be working with um, Fortuna as well. I'd love to get a perspective from when you talk about obsessing and obsessing over the customer, how do you guys drive internally or how do you drive to your internal teams the kind of being obsessive around agility? How do you drive like key partnerships both internally, but with your external stakeholders through technology as well? Um, are you guys looking at kind of a self-build methodology? Are you looking at bringing on experts to be able to come in and help with certain areas of the business? Like what's your kind of ethos with that of building a kind of world leading product? Well, before before I answer that question, well, um, for, I did my brief homework on you. And if I was correct, you one of the clients you work with SPG? Yeah, they are a big customer of ours. You know, SPG would probably be a great example of a company I think who did this well. I've never had the pleasure of working yeah. for them. But when I was in Paddy Power, Flutter merged with them. Yeah, yeah. They were colleagues of mine for a number of years. So I've actually had a chance to see under the hood. But they're a company that really obsessed about getting customers involved in every step of the journey. They had a thing called the Clubhouse, 
where they basically invited customers to sign up to provide feedback and they would get from memory several thousand maybe five six thousand customers who would be at all times engaged in their clubhouse yeah and they would give them prizes but they didn't like they weren't paying them they were customers who were delighted to have their opinion asked and to see their opinion listened to but what the really secret what they did very very well is they mapped the customers in the clubhouse with the customer behavior so if will in the clubhouse said something they'd know that will was a a uh, very recreational punter who only put it on uh, Australian football. And then when they're taking your insights and building their product, they would put you in a persona and they'd build their product for that. Today, in my extensive career, they're the best I've seen at really bringing to life customer insights and really involving customer in, in all their decision-making products. They were... Some, they delivered some of the biggest innovations in, in gambling in the recent years, like Request to Bet in the UK. Now, my ex-colleagues in Bedford will tell me off because they'll claim they invented cash out, which was probably a bigger invention. But anyway, <laughs> so what Skybet did is they came up with ideas and they would test them in the clubhouse. They wouldn't really bravely, they wouldn't spend lots of time building complex technology. They'd build front-end user experience, have an Excel model behind it, push it out in front of customers. And if it was working, they'd invest in it. And it's one of the reasons they were so successful, in my opinion. They really, yeah, yeah. really nailed that being close to the customer, listening to the customer. So I'd be a great believer in that. Something I'm trying to drive here in Fortuna. And I'm adding, like, it's a difficult moment with economic uncertainty. You'd be spending lots of money. But, like, I am strengthening our product team. Uh, and I am adding bodies to our insights team. Whereby really trying to slice and dice our customer data. And really um, expanding our customer research as well. Fundamentally, if, if you get the right, I think you make better decisions. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I, I think it's interesting. I've seen a lot of talks this year at the various events around the industry talking about getting your team thinking always from that customer first perspective and singing from the same song sheet, whether it's your, your product, your product side, your technical side, the sports book versus the marketing team and making sure that everyone's pointing in the right direction for success. So I think that that's a really interesting point that you're making there around the brands that are doing it right are obviously being agile, but they're, but they're pointing in the right direction. They're testing, they're understanding their customers, they're understanding the limitations of their own product and being able to kind of chase that. So yeah, no, really interesting. When I look at my new employer, Fortuna, we have lots of competitors online because it's the nature of an online business. But we have a massive advantage that we have an office with smart people in each of our markets. So like we have yeah. uh, several hundred people here in Prague. We have several hundred people in, in our in our office in Bucharest. We have two offices in, in Poland, one in Warsaw. So like we have bodies on the ground, which allows us to be close to our customer and allows us to understand our customer. And it's for me, the, the, the knowledge is there. It's just really making sure as an organization, we surface that knowledge and we listen to these people and we allow them to drive decisions because there is a risk. We have a central technical platform. We have a central product team, like lots of business across multiple jurisdictions and multiple brands. And um, just making sure that these people in the center are listening to our customer support and our customer insights people on the ground in our markets. For me, it'll be, uh, if I get that right, I will make an already great business even better. I was about to ask you about that need for localization and you, and you bring up America. I think that it, obviously you've got early adopters over there. I think that that's something that doesn't get talked about within that market enough. How important is localization from a European perspective for brands across the spectrum of Europe? Central Europe is very different to the more mature Western European markets like the UK. Obviously, it's a massive importance for you with people on the ground and learning that. Is that something that you think 
for businesses that are going to be successful moving forward, they've got to really double down on that. Yeah. Um, or can or can can there be a one size fits all you know product that is just given to you know you want to use it, you use it wherever you want, wherever you are. If you're in the Philippines, betting whatever. Again, looking at our sector, um, there's probably two models. There's a Bet365, which have built a very simple product that is the same everywhere and they compete and win on product and price and there'll be a strong player across many global markets um, and they don't obsess about localization at all. They obsess about making sure what they do, they do very, very well and consistently. And then you'll have businesses like Sportsbet in Australia. I think Sportsbet's the right name. Yeah, that's them. Yeah, or Paddy Power in Ireland, which would be obsessed about being really on the button, local, in humor, brand, present, product, just understanding our customers and being and being really, really close to our customers and being as relevant and localized as possible. Now, I think both models can work. But I think you need to go all in in one model or the other. And I think the risk is you get stuck somewhere in between. Yeah. And obviously, depending on where, like Super uh, Battery 65, interestingly, didn't have success in Australia. They've had success in most countries in the world. But in Australia, strong local execution with local knowledge and probably slightly differently, like soccer is not as strong. So like they didn't have the yeah, Australian sports. They didn't have the, the strength in rugby, Aussie rules, cricket. They probably didn't have the strength in Australian horse racing. So it didn't work there because they didn't have the localization. Um, so I think you need to, depending on the market, it's important. In Fortuna, again, I'm only here 12 weeks. I'm pushing, I'm a pushing a, a vision whereby we really look to be as close and as local as possible. So in, in Czech, we obsess about having the best product proposition and, and brand connection in the Czech Republic. And in, in Romania, we do the same thing. And that causes tensions. But if you don't do that, my fear is you end up building the lowest common denominator. And I'd rather build less, but really, really localized well than have okay for lots of stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, a really interesting perspective. And I think it's the type of decisions, obviously, that sit at the core of what businesses do. And I, I, I tend to agree the guys that seem to straddle are the ones that typically struggle um, where they're trying to be the best of everything, but not quite hitting either of those tunes. My new job is quite interesting because each one of our markets is regulatory quite different. Yeah. And that's something in the sector in particular, which means you can't really have one product for all. So it does force you, at least from a regulatory point of view, to localize. Yeah. And then if you're going to localize, why not localize as much as possible? Yeah, no, a really interesting perspective. And I think for people listening to the podcast, I think that's a huge thing that we probably don't touch on enough within sports betting and gaming. These types of conversations is that very different regulatory environment across what is happening. It's 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 so different to say e-commerce or other tech-led ventures. I'd love to get your kind of take, Victor, on what you are predicting for 2023. That's And that could be anything. Maybe we're going to land on the moon or something. I think that's not till 2024 with Artemis. But predictions potentially for the industry moving forward. You've, you've mentioned America as the big one to watch is maybe the canary, um, I think, on, on kind of best in practice. Lots of headwinds, I think, particularly in, in the tech sector in general. Do you think it's going to be a challenging year? There's opportunities now with the World Cup on at a very strange time of year, but probably beneficial in some ways, but also me eating into normal markets. Like what, what's your prediction for the sports betting and gaming industry generally moving into 2023? Well, to be honest, like I'm less than three months in a new country, in a new business. So I, I, I haven't been thinking an awful lot about global, global trends. Eyes yeah. on the wheels. Uh, so I've, I haven't been following the US as closely as I would have three months ago. 
So obviously the, the first thing for me is moving to Prague. Um, like I run a business in uh, Romania, in Poland, Czech, in Slovakia, in uh, Croatia, but like Ukraine, Ukraine is touching many of these markets, Ukraine and the uncertainty there and the yeah. ongoing horrendous war that's happening there. Um, that has a massive impact on the economies, on confidence level in these countries and that uncertainty and hopefully that uncertainty will come to an end and the Ukrainians will uh, successfully uh, repulse their, the invasion. But that obviously has an impact here. And so we're very strange winter and um, people are nervous. People are nervous about the uh, cost of living across the world, but particularly here because they're um, very dependent on uh, gas from Russia, very dependent on German economy because of the economics of the area. And um, we have huge inflation here and costs are going up faster than salary. So I think there's going to be a short term, potentially difficult few months. I would be optimistic in the medium term because, again, I, I've joined a business whereby we have strong local teams, strong local brands. I think we can make improvements on product and that's what I've been focusing on. I think if we focus and execute properly, we have significant opportunity to, to take share in our chosen markets. So I'm, I'm optimistic and excited for the business, but I'm cautious in the short term. I'll be cautious about investment, cautious about um, spending money just because it's highly likely that if, particularly if it's a cold winter, that our customers will have less money to spend. Yeah. Because we are an entertainment product and disposable incomes will be squeezed because inflation and costs are going up faster than salaries and therefore real wages are declining. Um, so very focused on the near rather than on, uh, on the global picture, I'm afraid. Really good answer, I think. And there's, yeah, there's, there's so much at play there within that space. What about, are you much of a football fan? Predictions for the World Cup, <laughs> I think it's probably important to cover off there. And yeah. You've, you'll hear this first from Fortuna Entertainment Group CEO as well. So let's make sure we note these predictions. Hopefully the podcast will come out after the World Cup and we'll be able to say you were no, right no, or wrong. Victor, then can so. we record five answers to this question? So <laughs> yeah, 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 we can right. actually. Yeah. Let's do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first. Money money in the bank. Um, it's been an interesting start. Like uh, I didn't get to see the Argentina game, but I uh, wasn't expecting that. Um, strange, as a bookmaker, uh, and I don't, know what, I don't know whether your customers uh, understand this, um, Offering offering prices on on sport sucks the life out of the sport because uh, a good result for the bookmakers is a nil all draw. Yeah. So so we're sitting cheering on like the we've a business in Poland and um, nil all draw for Poland. We had a really really generous offer on the on the on the, on the game. We had um, um, we were funding all bets if Poland won. Uh, like a nil all draw was good was good for my my P and L. Now it's actually not good in the medium term because. We're an entertainment business. You want you want customers to enjoy our products. Yeah. So from a bookmaking point of view, um, the favourites going out early is probably not good for longer term involvement in the tournament. Does that mean so, Germany at risk? Argentina at risk already? Um, but probably the smart teams actually don't try too early because it's a hot it's a hot tournament. I think Italy likes to lose the first game and then win World Cups. They haven't qualified this time around, so maybe I shouldn't read too much into early results. Uh, looking forward to watching Brazil tonight. I'm actually going to my local pub and drinking some good Czech beer. Not sure it'll be a European winner based on uh, form so far. Like it's it's not in Europe. Um, maybe maybe it's Brazil's year again. Yeah, we can safely say that the Socceroos um, are probably not going to challenge for it this year. Unfortunately, after the way we were we were panned by um, the French. But um, yeah, I, I think uh, yeah, massively massively interesting. And I'm sure for you guys as a business, like. A, a fun time but a challenging time when the world cups are on like this as well your teams are probably 
well into it, but you'd be watching the PL very closely for some of these upsets and whatnot. A lot of fun. Like, the, fortunately, I have a business in Poland and in Croatia. Both are involved. Yeah. Both are nil all draws, though. Great for the PL short term, but not good for uh, <laughs> entertainment yeah. value. Um, if I was still in my Paddy Power hat, obviously, the question is, is it coming home? But uh, I'm not quite sure it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. With half our people based in the UK, there is certainly some um, suggestions that it is coming home, but it's it's to be, I think it's to be advised yet. We'll wait and see they play. Some, um, some, some of the harder games. I'd love to actually get your perspective on this. How much does a global competition like this in like a key market, particularly in, from a European context, does it provide opportunities for acquisition for you guys? Um, are you doing anything, and this might be too deep into the weeds, but are you doing anything specifically around, you know, free to play um, marketing campaigns to drive acquisition that these types of tournaments do. I'm, I imagine in, in the countries that are involved, like Poland and Croatia, that that's probably something you're leaning into or? It's a strange tournament, obviously, because it's in winter and uh, December. So there's actually less football this December than it would be normally because yeah. um, like all the domestic leagues, leagues are closed. So we'll actually, we're expecting a softer December this year than last year because of the, the World Cup and less fixtures. That said, um, it's a mass market event. Like it, uh, it transcends core sport fans. Um, so we typically see big engagement, but less frequency. So very, very recreational customers. So yes, we see it as an opportunity to engage with new customers. We see it as an opportunity to, to expand, expand our brand. We actually have free to play products live in four right. of our markets that our Polish business decided not, decided not to because they felt they had enough on with Poland in the World Cup. Yeah. We have a free to play simple football kicks game on most of our markets. You come in, take some penalties and you can win some, uh, uh, free credit. We have a free to play type last man standing game. So yeah, so it's a way to engage the customers in a novel way. Yeah, and I, I think the brands that double down on then retaining those new customers and understanding that they're new is super important coming out of this. Um, and that tends to be where the where the drop off usually is for most brands, where they're not we're not 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 making sure that they're doubling down on that retention piece as well. As part of our onboarding journey now, we will send out very simple videos to explain betting to customers like that, explaining some of our products in a very visual and simple way. So I'll be watching carefully right. to see how they perform and see what impact they have. But um, bang in line with your with your your your, yeah. your advice there. It's a, they're a different customer, and you need to where possible tailor their journey accordingly. Yeah, excellent, Victor. Really entertaining, and I think like we've. Touched on a on a thousand different things there. We'll obviously get some real nuggets out of that. I think, which is which is great. I want to take the time from our perspective at Extreme Push to thank you for coming on. We wish the Fortuna Entertainment Group nothing but success, and you personally as well. We'll be watching the space very closely to see how you go. We'll check back in on those World Cup predictions and and let you know how close to the money you were. And then we'll go from there. But Victor, thanks for the time and, and joining us on the podcast today. Well, really enjoyed the chat. Looking forward to doing it properly over a beer in Dublin. Thank you. Always welcome. Cheers, Victor. Awesome. Thanks for joining us for the Experts in the Room podcast brought to you by Extreme Push. Subscribe now for more episodes in our series. This podcast was produced by Record Media.